The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Welcome to episode 52 of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Lee Russell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel Harper. How are you doing, sir? Doing all right. How are you? Good, good. We were, again, sort of dipping into some uh, noir and neo-noir and crime films. Who knows how long this will, will go, but we're having this fun This is the so new far. format for the podcast, right? Like, it's just, we're it's just going to be crime noir films. films. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. No more horror, no more anything else. It's just all noir films. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that had happened. This podcast would die a pretty quick death, I think, if that was all there was going on. But yeah, we're going to be looking at probably a fairly unknown noir to some people from 1961 called Blast of Silence. But before we get into that, we do have a little bit of housekeeping to do. First thing I want to mention is I wanted to throw a little uh, thanks to uh, your friend Jack Graham, from the uh, Doctor Who uh, side of the podcast circles, who has been sort of pimping us out lately a couple times on Twitter. And he's been nice enough to do that. Very much appreciated. And we're probably going to have him on here in a few episodes for uh, some talk about some Coen brothers and some David Lynch. He uh, basically started retweeting us. Uh, He's kind of a buddy of mine to some degree. Uh, We kind of chat online quite a bit and uh we have similar political views actually i kind of want him to come on so all the people who think i'm like a radical leftist can listen to jack <laughs> you know that, that's kind of the uh <laughs> but yeah no uh it's it's uh it's nice to it, it's funny because he's been listening to always space Man for a while and i think he was just like oh and now now uh daniel keeps mentioning this they must be destroyed on the site podcast so i need to like, give that a listen and then uh, he says, uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it. It's a fun listen. So I'm like, hey, cool. Uh, yeah, no, that's cool. I'm, I'm following him on Twitter, and I've been enjoying his tweets. And, uh, of course, I've heard him a couple times. Like, I've listened to a couple of the uh, uh, Pex Lives and a couple of the other ones that you've been on with him. You've been guesting on some podcasts as of late Doctor Who-specific yep. podcasts for the most part. And, uh, yeah, I've been enjoying those conversations, too. So very, very nice of him to uh, retweet us. And he should be on in a, in a couple episodes. So that'd be yeah, awesome. Yeah, I just got to work out the schedule, really. And I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure we'll find something mutually acceptable. So Yeah, right on. I do have a little series of comments here. I'll just sort of condense into one from Greg. He's uh, back. And he says, in case you're wondering where all my comments are, well, I got a new job. That is a nice step up for me. And he says, uh, but sadly, I actually have to work now and can't just watch YouTube videos all day. So while I still listen to every episode, I will not often get a chance to watch the movie you are discussing and therefore I probably won't comment. So he says, to those of you who like my comments, sorry. To those of you who find my comments annoying, you're welcome. He says, in regards to our Dawn of the Dead episode, he says, fantastic show, guys. Probably your best. Congrats to 50. Uh, Thank you very much. I don't have much to say right now. I'll have to listen again to see if I think of anything. Uh, But he says, but Dawn of the Dead is such an incredible movie. Even though 
it's not as gory or suspenseful as some of the others in the genre. I think it's got something that few movies have, a constant sense of dread that never really lets go. Even during the more humorous bits, I always find like something just isn't right. Like, the good times just won't last. I've seen the movie probably over 50 times in my life, and I still get that feeling every time. He says, while Halloween remains my overall favorite horror movie of all time, this one is up there. For zombie movies, well, I'm a huge fan of Return of the Living Dead, which is awesome, and I think it's even it's a more fun movie to watch, but as a serious take on the genre, I don't think any movie has ever been able to touch this one, including Romero's other work. And he says, also uh, mentioned that hearing Paul's point of view as someone who lives in the area is really interesting and sort of puts the movie in a different perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I for one, really liked hearing Paul's comment. You know, just, just living in that area and kind of having this piece of film history kind of in your backyard, or not not necessarily in his backyard, but, but kind of having it close like that is, is something that... uh. It was really nice. It was. It was really. He he definitely brought a different perspective than. than we did. Yeah. You know, I liked that. Uh, I liked sitting in on that, and I liked uh, re-listening to it because I did re-listen to uh, most of that episode. That was like three hours long. I didn't yeah. listen to everything. But, <laughs> you know, I, I skipped around to that a bit. So. Yeah, uh, and I have a good authority. No one would want to film in Paul's backyard because <laughs> that's even a little too scary for Romero at that point. But uh, I, I digress on that. Yeah, so I think we can move on. Thanks, Greg, for the comments, by the way. I want to move on to uh, whatever we've uh, watched in last while. I have nothing that I can recall, so I'll just throw it over to you, Daniel. Sure. Well, I keep a spreadsheet now, just uh, specifically, yeah. so, uh, you know. Uh, I have two things. Uh, one is a, a little um, kind of fantasy comedy thing from 1944 called It Happened Tomorrow. Um, I actually saw this. Uh, it was a reference. I, I watched the movie Time Lapse on Netflix a few weeks ago, and this was one that was kind of referenced in the as kind of one of the antecedents to it. It's a a little film that actually stars Dick Powell, um, who was actually the very first person to play Philip Marlowe on screen. Oh, really? Um, and uh, but it it stars uh, Dick Powell uh, as a uh, newspaper man who magically starts getting newspapers like his own newspaper from the next day and uh you know kind of the the comic mishaps that happen uh, around that there is a uh, a young actress at the time uh named uh linda darnell she is uh, actually quite stunning um she's definitely got this noir look and i found out she did a bunch of noir films so i'm looking into some of her uh some of her other work and uh, she, this is a film, I mean, it's probably not the kind of film that most of the people listening to this podcast are going to seek out. But if you're a fan of kind of 40s uh, kind of comedies and, and um, with a little bit of a kind of sci-fi fantasy twist to them, uh, this is worth a watch. I mean, it's definitely kind of a studio movie of the time, um, but it's, it's pretty well executed. It's got some, a uh, little bit of a creepy moments, uh, some, some creepy stuff in it too. So uh, uh, definitely kind of an uh, interesting film worth uh, at least taking a glance at if you're uh, so inclined. Yeah, cool, because uh, you, you mentioned the uh, newspaper from the future kind of thing. Like Immediately that sort of draws me right to the uh, almanac from Back to the Future, right? The sports almanac. Right. And I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, like I'm trying to think back. I'm, I'm pretty sure I, I read a sci-fi story where that sort of idea originated from, but I can't think of what it was, and I'm yeah. kind of wondering if it was really early on. The, the idea is, has been around for a little while. I mean, there's 
Robert Heinlein's very first short story published was a short story called Lifeline, where mm-hmm. the idea is that uh, there's a, it's a slightly different idea, but there's this guy who uh, develops a machine that can tell you exactly how long it is before you die. Oh. And so um, basically, he puts the insurance companies out of business, or he would, except you know it's just this little device and you know that sort of thing. Um, it actually uh, plays with some of those same ideas of is this predestination? Is this fated? Can we change the things that are in the newspaper or not? It, I mean, it does kind of ultimately suffer from the issue of, you know, <laughs> I have this magic ability to, you know, like I have this newspaper in front of me that's from tomorrow. Like the laws of time and space are suddenly malleable. I'm now going to go to the horse racing track. Yeah. You know? Like, you know, yes, let's go make some money. Um, there, There is, or let me use this to advance my career. Um, but that is kind of, I guess, the way most people would approach it. You know, most people wouldn't like have the big philosophical thing until you know it's kind of stabbing them in the face, really. But um, you know, it's a fun little movie. It's a fun little idea. Um, there's nothing too incredibly deep in it. Um, it's not like a great piece of cinema, but it's worth checking out. Um, and uh, in particular for uh, Linda Darnell, who I think is really the uh, kind of steals the movie to some degree. Yeah. Um, in some of the scenes she's in, she's she's really funny and uh, really. Uh, Really good, and um, again, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch some of her uh, noir films. I think just as kind of a sideline while we're uh, doing this series, and I'll I'll probably talk about her a little bit more cool. in the coming weeks. So, uh, the other film I watched, um, and this is one that uh, I knew of, but you kind of mentioned it um, in in uh, connection to Mystery Road, and that's uh, John Sales' Lone Star. All right, oh. I had never seen this film before, but I did uh, I did watch it, and uh, wow, I mean. It's it's a great film. It's uh, I get you know now that I've seen both, I'm like yeah no, Mystery Road is very clearly kind of cribbing from some of the same material. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's it's a sales film, and sales does the the kind of the, those kind of big sweeping. I kind of think of it as like a, an intimate epic, you know, where it's, mm-hmm. it's very uh, personal and it's very kind of built on people's personalities, and you know, but it's also kind of about you know interracial politics in this border town in the, in the late 90s sort of thing you know it's it's kind of both at the same time and and nobody does that better than John Sales I think he's he's really got this uh finger on the pulse we might cover I mean I I would be interested in covering this one in a little bit more detail at some point um because I do have some some thoughts I don't really want to get into into it too deeply here um you know some of the political stuff and some of the uh some of the way that some of it feels dated today and that sort of thing i mm-hmm. i think would be an interesting conversation to have but it's a uh, definitely absolutely worth your time it's really not a crime picture it's really much more you know kind of a intergenerational saga in a way mm-hmm. it's definitely an ensemble piece and um it made me think that really we should be doing um a series on ensemble pieces from the 90s <laughs> because there are so many of them, you know, yeah. do Lone Star and Magnolia and Shortcuts and, you know, all those, you know, all those kind of films, you know, the, the kind of big dozen cast members sort of, sort of movies. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was such a, like a cottage industry for a little while in the uh, independent cinema world. Yeah, we could definitely do that. Def- definitely want to do Lone Star sometime down the road. I, I don't know if it, I mean, I, I would, I would kind of say it kind of slightly fits into neo-noir, but I wouldn't say it maybe fits as much as we're probably looking for in the series, so maybe we'll keep it on the back burner. But it kind of it kind of borrows from neo noir without mm-hmm. really being a neo noir. I mean it's it's really using some of those genre tropes. I mean really what it does is it takes the crime and uses it as a spine on which to hang this kind of intergenerational narrative. Yeah. You know, as opposed to really being about that narrative. I mean 
basically we just kind of wander away from that plot for a while and then come back to it when we need another, you know, like justification for going somewhere else in a way. Um, and it's really not even about the central crime, but about all the other crimes that are around it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so, uh, man, um, I, gotta, I gotta say Chris Christopherson, what a mean motherfucker he plays. Oh well, yeah. I mean, there's some great performances. I mean, yeah. Chris Cooper, I mean, you know, you can't, I'm not telling anybody any, that anything they don't already know that Chris Cooper is brilliant, but yeah. man, he's, he's fucking amazing in this. Uh, Elizabeth Pena didn't realize had died, which is yeah. uh, you know kind of routinely. I'm looking at these movies. And I'm like, oh, what else did she, you know? What else was she in? And then you go, oh, she died two years ago, and you go, well, damn it, like that damn, just, yeah. know, just makes you feel bad. But uh, yeah, she's uh, she's phenomenal in this. I mean, you know, she again almost steals the movie out from under Chris Cooper um, in a lot of ways. A big big cast. Uh, if you haven't seen Lone Star, it's it's definitely worth it. It's definitely worth seeking out. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, it sounds like we are going to cover this. Um, since yeah, I think, I think you and I are both kind of like. Yeah. yeah, this is this is this is kind of in our wheelhouse. Uh, yeah, but, you know, that that's down the road a little ways, but we'll we'll get that taken care of. Yeah, I guess we can just move on to the main event here, and uh, we'll run right into Blast of Silence from 1961. off. You understand me? Yeah, I understand you. You're going to be party to an attempt to kill a man. This is the asphalt jungle. This is New York City with its fancy women and fancy hoodlums. With its very special beat. Its very special places. Its hunters and hunted. And you will walk side by side with Frankie Bono as he stalks his prey, knowing what is in his mind, feeling what is in his heart. And your hands will sweat with his fear. Your pulse will pound with his desire. Frankie, no! No, Frankie! You're going to have to be game, Frank. Hey, you're going to have to pay luxury prices, boy. I'll pay you nothing. And even as he prepares to unleash his blast of silence, you will discover that you and Frankie Bono are playing the most dangerous game in the world. Directed by Alan Barron, who is probably best known now for uh, his TV work. Uh, he only did a handful of films, but he is known for doing quite a few episodes of Charlie's Angels, The Dukes of Hazard, Kolchek, The Night Stalker, and uh, The San Pedro Beach Bums, and Cagney and Lacey. I never heard of the uh, San Pedro Beach Bums, but uh, that's been a short-lived fucking show. Alan Barron also wrote uh, the screenplay for this, some added narration written by Waldo Salt, credited as Mel Davenport in this, who is probably best known as a screenwriter in Hollywood for Midnight Cowboy and Serpico, by the way. So it's starring Alan Barron as Frank Bono, uh, Molly McCarthy as Laurie, Larry Tucker as Big Ralph, Peter Clune as Torino, Danny Meehan as Petey, Howard Mann as the bodyguard, Charles Cresep as Contact Man, Bill DiPrato as Joe Boniface, 
and some uncredited narration from Lionel Stander. So uh, I'll let you go right to the uh, the summary. Yeah, sure. No problem. This is kind of rough. I apologize. Uh, But uh, here's my summary. Blast of Silence, written by, directed by, and starring Alan Barron, is a small, existential, and occasionally brutal noir following a professional killer named Frank Bono as he struggles to complete a hit on a mid-level mafia boss named Troiano, Peter Clune. Roughly the first third of the film is devoted to showing the audience how isolated and hard a man Bono is. Through the use of a tough guy second-person voiceover narration by Lionel Standard, we learn Bono's process and mentality as he plies his trade. After a chance meeting with an old chum from the orphanage where he grew up, and in particular a renewed physical interest in the chum's sister Lori, cracks begin to appear in Bono's facade and his professional life spins out of control. A pair of senseless murders and a deeply uncomfortable social faux pas later, Bono winds up floating dead in the water, having been killed for the temerity to vacillate on his desire to fulfill the larger goals of the organization. Nice. I think that sums it up pretty well. Um, This is a very short movie. It only runs 77 minutes. Independent film. was never really picked up or uh, looked at by the big studios, so it went to obscurity for years. And this was just sort of a uh, a movie that Baron scratched together. Uh, you know, he, he he managed to scratch together uh, twenty grand, I think, by, by on his own, and then got some uh, people to throw some money in as well, and then got it made. A very New York centric kind of film, and it is a very short, moody character piece for the most part that uh, really focuses on this killer. Uh, his sort of internal monologue done in second person by uh, Lionel Sanders' narration for the most part. Yeah, I'll just throw over to you, Daniel, sort of your initial thoughts on this one, if, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Um, I had not heard of this before uh, you mentioned it, just completely under my radar. You know, after, I think you'd mentioned this in our Christmas films discussion. Could have been, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I, I kind of set that aside, you know, because I'm always like, oh, a new neo noir or a noir that I haven't seen. I'm always, I'm always on the lookout for something interesting. So uh, that was definitely, you know, it, it had been on my, it had been on my list of like to watch very soon for a while. I've got to say, like, I, I was expecting something a little bit more big. I'm not saying the film was bad. I do have, I was expecting something that was really going to kind of blow me away, based on your recommendation, and maybe my expectations were a little high because I just went, oh, Criterion Edition, clearly this is like, you know, something that's like big and important and interesting and I'm really kind of ready to plow into it and really like engage with this. And uh, there's a lot here, but it, it it definitely is a small film. It's a smaller film than I thought it was going to be. Um, and not just in length, but in terms of, you know, kind of its ambitions are not, are not as... Uh, I don't know. I find it hard to articulate because it's not that I don't like the film. Mm-hmm. It's just that I don't like the film as much as I wanted to like it, if, if that makes sense. And I, and I think uh, digging into the big reasons for that, I think that it is, um, to some degree, the age of it shows a little bit. I mean, this was from 61. We've seen this idea kind of done lots of times now. Um, and I'm not sure how big an original this was in 61. I mean, obviously, you know, it's it's not as prevalent then as it is now, but we've kind of seen, you know, films like In Bruges, which do mm-hmm. this kind of social idea and do it in a, in a, in a much more kind of psychologically real way. Um, this kind of pushes more towards existentialism and kind of push, pushes yeah. more towards a, a kind of a, a darker um, kind of interpretation of morality and human behavior. But 
not in a very sophisticated way, I, I feel. I feel like it's it's a little bit one note at times. And uh, that may be because I only watched it once. I do have more to say, but I, I, I think my overall impression was just like, oh, that's interesting, but not necessarily what I thought it was going to be. I don't know what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, um, keep me off the podcast, probably. Yeah, you, know. <laughs> you bastard! It is. It is a very short, brutal film, and in that regard, it kind of mirrors uh, Frankie Pono's uh, life. The most important thing about it, for for the most part, is most people sort of cite um, "Touch of Evil" as being like the last sort of classic noir film, right. um, and I think I think maybe there's an argument that this might be it. Or if not, if if not the last classic, at least the the one film that's like the transition between sort of the classic noir to the sort of modern interpretations. I can't I can't quite recall ever seeing like I've 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 not seen every classic noir, of course, but I've never really seen anything that sort of really delved into the character of like a hitman before that this one did. So that's that's sort of one of the levels I really appreciate this on. I really do love the central performance, even though Alan Barron was just sort of a, he, he wasn't like a seasoned actor. He had only done a couple, a lot of stage work. And I think he only has one other actual, like legit act, acting credit, like outside of the stage, but he really brings a real sort of visceral angst to his character that I really appreciated. I've read that Martin Scorsese really admires this film and i can kind of see like echoes of this in taxi driver like frankie bono is very much kind of a uh, progenitor to uh, de niro's character in taxi driver in a lot of ways like a very alienated uh loner who is a social outcast I just see a lot of where a lot of films probably stole from this film um, or were influenced by this film even though this film itself didn't get the light of day for like 30 years you know after it was released, yeah, no, you can you can clearly see kind of the the origins of Scorsese. I mean, Scorsese is all about that like Catholic guilt and that sort of mm-hmm. you know like uh, sin and morality and all that sort of thing. And certainly, his early work is I mean, is just drenched with that. Not just Taxi Driver, but Mean Streets is you know, yeah all about that. When you think about this film, as I mean, it totally like makes sense to me that oh, Scorsese saw this when he was young or saw it in film school or something and was, like, hugely influenced by it. And, and I get that this film is influential. I guess that, for me, it's a, it is it is one where I have a hard time kind of watching it outside of its context and, and mm-hmm. putting it back into its context and, and uh, kind of because we've just seen this so often now, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm sorry to cut in there, no, but no, no, um, no. Uh, I'll agree that, um, and I think one of the main things you're saying is it's, something that, you know, you've seen done a lot better and the film is not big and sprawling, you know, like it's a very small film. I don't mind that that much with this film. I like that it is kind of small. It's kind of insular. Um, I like that it's a character piece that, and I I think there's a lot in there with the actual sort of character study that I I just really appreciate. I mean, it's not, it's not touch of evil. I I look at this comparison to touch of evil though. Like that, that, that does, um, I was thinking of breathless when I was uh, Uh watching this actually, um, because breathless is all about kind of uh, playing with genre tropes and then kind Uh of like this main character who's like almost play acting as a Humphrey Bogart character. 
And, um, you know, I kind of got this sense, and I, and I do want to dig into this in, in a moment, that Frank Bono is kind of playing the role of a, of a gangster more so than he's actually a gangster to some degree. Some of his unraveling is, is because his, uh, you know, his facade is kind of uh, dropped. Okay, well, actually, let's just jump into that, because um, the reading I got from this character is that th- there's, there's allusions made to his past, uh, that he was an orphan. Every father figure or fam- family figure that he's known has abandoned him or left him to some degree. So he is a very guarded, insular person. Although he desires human contact, for the most part, he avoids it at all costs. I got the feeling that this is a guy who the only focus he found in his life was his professionalism as a hired killer. And even there, it's made pretty clear that he is not respected. He's not liked. uh, He's not loved by anybody. He is a tool. And if that tool shows any sort of chink in its armor, you know, it's any wear or tear, it's discarded and the next tool is used. And I think that's sort of one of the central points of the film is that it really totally takes the glamour that a lot of films might put on like a on a hired killer running around killing people for lots of money. This this film really shows that no, these are people in really bad situations who uh, can be as disposable as the people they're killing at any given moment and. It's that kind of stuff that really sort of elevates the film for me, seeing this sort of stuff brought out. And I, and I realize that this is sort of like the prototypical version of that story, and that story's been done further on in more films and probably better in more films. Uh, in fact, I would say it has been done better in other films. But there's something really gritty and street-level about this that I really, really appreciate. And, and, and I think a lot of it also has to do with just the cin- cinematography for this. For such a low-budget picture, there's this really claustrophobic feel of the New York City streets. And sometimes the city streets are like totally barren, and it kind of brought me back with the black and white photography to uh, fuck. What was that film we watched? The the world, the oh, the world, yeah. the flesh and the devil. The yeah. world, the flesh and the devil. I, I was sort of getting the same vibe as that. Well, we, and, what we needed, what we needed in this film was more Sidney Poitier. Like, yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Sidney Poitier just walks in and he's like breaking plates. You know, it's thing. <laughs> I think I might be damning it with faint praise a little bit as well because I did really enjoy the film. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's not it's not that I didn't enjoy the film, um, and I and I am kind of uh, I, I guess that I, I kind of admire it more than I enjoy it. You know, mm-hmm. because. Uh, on a technical level, I, I have enormous respect for for the film, and in fact, I, I could go through and, and almost every shot in the film has something interesting going on thematically yeah. or uh, visually or uh, in terms of its framing. I mean, the the direction and the um, the editing and the um, and the score are all phenomenal. You know, for a low budget film in the early '60s, I mean, you know, it's it's a uh, it's kind of amazing when you think about like just the technical problems that a lot of these filmmakers had that you wouldn't even think of today. I mean, I was I was kind of uh, you know listening to another podcast and they were talking about like kind of making films and in, in you know low budget films in the '60s and talking about how like well, we didn't have money to like get a dissolve. You know, like today we wouldn't even think like a dissolve is something. I mean, now you just do it all digitally. You know, there's no, yeah. but but at the time, you know, that's like, well, that's like a few hundred dollars. We just didn't have in our budget to, to you know, to, to do a dissolve. So everything has to be a cut. And so I think there is this kind of element where, uh, you know, it, it is kind of easy to look at this stuff and kind of not 
think about like how difficult some of this must have been um, on a low budget. And um, I'm actually going to say nice things about this film now I, because I don't <laughs> want you to think I didn't enjoy the film uh, because I really did. And um, I'm going to do that. I'm going to ask you a question first, and that is what do you think about the voiceover? I loved it. Most people will, I, I think most people going into this are going to be thrown off of it because I don't think anyone has ever heard a second person voiceover narration in their lives for, before they listen to this film. Cause I can't recall any other film that does it. And if you don't know what second person uh, narration is, think of when you were a kid and you were reading those choose your own adventure books, because that is all in second person narration you do this, you do that, you feel this and that, and then you make your choices or whatever. Although in this movie, <laughs> it's almost like it's predestined that Frank Bono is going to meet his grave, that he's he, he doesn't get the option of making any choices in the Choose Your Own Adventure. But this is great. It's got Lionel Stander, who was a famous character actor, did a lot of noir heavies and tough guys and villains, ran up against the Un-American Activities uh, whatever committee and was outed as a member of the Communist Party, so he was blackballed. Same thing for Waldo Salt, by the way, who did the narration writing. So you've got two communists on this film. Not enough, really. We need more communists. <laughs> I like but, this film more and more. More communists is, is generally better. And, you know, yeah, and but, but, it's, but it's great because Stander, if you don't know him, he's got this really gravelly voice. And I think Daniel and I would probably best know Lionel Stander from his appearance in uh, Once Upon a Time in the West because uh, he is the barkeep owner where um, where she goes to that that little bar and meets um, Banjo, and he's he's the barkeep, and he you know he's smitten with her. He's like, oh yes, ma'am, and he's uh, trying to <laughs> clean the glasses and stuff like that. And um, I did not realize that was the same guy, but that's that's uh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm with you. Yeah, no, Lionel um, Stan Lionel Stan is awesome, and he's got this gravelly, authoritative voice. Uh, it's almost alluded to that maybe he's the voice of God or something along those lines in the narration to a certain extent. I had a different read on it, and in fact, the reason I, I, I wanted to ask you because I did have some thoughts, and, and a lot of how I feel about the film kind of revolves around how I feel about the voiceover narration. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's something that's really prominent in the film. There, this uh, voiceover this kind of internal dialogue, internal monologue, whatever is going on throughout the film. This is not something that's just in the first few minutes, like setting us up. This is all the way through the, through the film. The second person narration is very, very rare. I mean, I guess uh, fight club has a bit of it, you know? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, right, right, right. Fight Club, Fight Club uses it uses it to to great effect as well. It's been so long since I've seen that. So and now, yeah. now I wonder if uh, you know Fincher and Ulls and uh, Polinick got it from uh, Blast of Silence, which is I wouldn't be surprised. I kind of interpreted it as I mean, a it's his internal monologue. This is what he's telling himself, and instead of it being like the voice of God, I kind of interpreted it as like the voice of a mentor figure in his life, you know, the person who got him into the world mm-hmm. or the voice of the, basically it's the, the uh, externalized voice, like forcing him into this role Could uh, be yeah. as the film goes on, as he starts to, um, well, we'll get into that, get into that here in a minute. But mm-hmm. uh, as the film goes on, you know, this isn't the person he is. The person that he's choosing to be is not really, doesn't really feel authentic to this character. It feels yeah, his, like his, his, his professionalism this thing is kind of forced on him by yeah. 
either his circumstances or his choices and, and you know his financial situation, whatever. I find myself really interested in, in some of the content of that early voiceover. Where, oh, the, um, the, well, with the, with the train, like with the train coming through the tunnel, that's that is like I think that's explicitly connected to the birth canal and him giving birth. Yeah. Like that's what we're talking about, uh, baby boy Frankie Bono coming right. into the world screaming. You know, it's like oh yeah, that that is so really well done. I really enjoy that every time I see it. Remembering. Out of the black silence, you were born in pain. Easy, easy does it, little mother. We've never lost a father. Your job is done, little mother. You were born with hate and anger built in. Took a slap in the backside to blast out the scream. And then you knew you were alive. Eight pounds, five ounces. Baby boy Frankie Bono. Father doing well. Later you learned to hold back the scream and let out the hate and anger another way. Come into Manhattan by dark, whatever time of day it is, through tunnels like sewers hidden under the city. But you don't mind that. It's always that way, whatever city it is. Oh, no, no, it's it's a great opening. I mean, it really. I mean, I I, I only I, I hate that I watch this like on a laptop. I, I really wish I watched this, you know, on a. I if this if this was playing in a cinema near me, I would absolutely uh, check it out. Uh, one of the moments that I thought was interesting is uh, early on, he's following Triano in the, in the mm-hmm. car. He has a line where he's talking about uh, uh, Triano's wealth, and he's got this big house, yeah. and he's got all this stuff. Bono's like, oh well, I have this stuff too. I mean, I could, I could have, I have that much money. I just don't have that stuff. I don't need it. You know, I, I have other things, and you know that sort of thing. And and it is like this almost like sour grapes kind of element to yeah. it. Yeah, you know? because um, uh, it it makes a it explicitly makes a point that uh, you you can, you can learn to hate him easy or whatever. Like like it, it sort of makes the point that all his targets. He he follows them and he finds a reason to hate them, so it's easy to kill them. Right. Which I mean may very well be the way that you know some of these guys do it. I mean I, yeah. I don't you know I certainly imagine that that's effective. You know, <laughs> like even if even if it's not really the qualities of their target, because it also makes a point that and he's making up his own ideas of what this guy really is. Right. The target's name is Troyano. You know the type. Second-string syndicate boss with too much ambition and a mustache to hide the fact he has lips like a woman, the kind of face you hate. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and uh, certainly uh, Frank is, a, is an unreliable narrator to some degree. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't, you know, we see kind of how damaged and broken he is, and uh, we certainly don't get a sense of, like, this guy has this really, like, keen insight into human nature. Yeah, no, um, he's very inept. Late in the film. 
you know, I mean, he, he's kind of talking about like, oh, how I've got to have this like perfect, you know, knowledge of the, you know, I could have been an architect. I could have been mm-hmm. you know, this. I could have done that. Like, I've got no, all this knowledge. Be. I've got all this knowledge and I'm, I'm so good at my job. And then when you see how he's actually does this thing, you know, he's scrambling down you know, ladders and he's, he's yeah. not like he's in no way, um, uh, you know, being incognito. And in fact, he, he misses the fact, like, how is I going to get through that fucking door? You know, he, he has to kick a door down because he's uh, he just fucked up. You know what no, I mean? It, it's, like, it's, 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 it's weird because this might be the first time it's ever happened to him. But, I mean, I think it's kind of alluded to that this has always been boiling under the surface with his character. During this job where he's screwing up, he's scrambling around like a rat, like the rats that the, the guy he buys the, the gun from. Ralphie, yeah, Ralphie. Yeah. He he's he, he scrambling around like the rats that he so disdains that he sees in Ralphie's uh, apartment. Yeah, no, uh, th- there definitely is uh, there is a sequence in the film where the uh, the rats are explicitly paralleled with uh, with Frank. So, mm. uh, you know, I guess I guess the reason I asked you, and I and I I'll move away from the voiceover specifically here in a second, but the reason I there's a part of me that wishes the film didn't have it. Like mm-hmm. if we if we did just watch Frank do his job and didn't have that that kind of overarching that that kind of almost oppressive voiceover, the film would feel spare and precise and you, it would feel much more brutal. There's also just the element that the the voiceover feels old fashioned in a way, and I think it it's deliberately old fashioned. Like it, mm-hmm. it feels like something that Frank acting in 1961 saw in a film in 1945 and thought was cool and so oh, yeah, he's well, living his life by that you know like it, well, you it, know the, the the dialogue is straight out of like 30s and 40s noir crime films and novels like it, it is it is totally that and actually that's a pretty interesting point i would like to see this film without the narration honestly because I think they felt like they maybe had to put it in there to do something with the long expanses of nothing being said in the film because, you know, there's there's plenty of scenes in this film where it's just him walking, him following, him doing his job, his, his sort of mundane routine to follow his target and set up his, kit, his hit and everything. So I think maybe it almost, in a way, might have been a mistake on Baron's part to feel like I need to put something on here or the audience isn't going to watch the film. And it might have been a legit concern because maybe the audience wouldn't have wanted to watch this film if there was no talking for like 10 minutes, you know? I I think that there's this kind of question of like, like at some point, even the authorial intent kind of, we we can't discern that necessarily. And it doesn't matter. I mean, ultimately it's the kind of the artistic product kind of Mm -hmm. dies on its own merits. For me, I, I think that without the narration, it becomes a much more kind of standard noir flick that, that's kind of this brutal crime picture. With it, it, it gains this kind of philosophical bent. And I think that, uh, again, kind of articulating out loud while I'm, I'm thinking through these ideas, it, it, uh, I think maybe my issue is that the existentialism doesn't hold up as well as I'd like it to. Mm-hmm. If we're, you know, supposed to kind of take it seriously on that level, it does feel a little bit kind of freshman philosophy seminar to me, you know, in a, in a way that, I mean, this is a much better film than that, in a way that like uh, Killing Them Softly, which you and I both have very deep disdain for, uh, you know, <laughs> Killing Them Softly has God that. Damn it. 
has has a very like yeah. you know, overtly you know political philosophical thing that it's pretending to do, and it's just yeah. like completely inept at doing it. This isn't to that degree. I'm not. I'm not trying to make a, a, a false equivalence. Oh here. no, no, I, I, um, I get. But that. you kind of see what I'm reaching for here. Is yeah, that, yeah. You know, to some degree, I, the philosophy isn't informed enough by what's happening on screen for it to really work, and it might have worked better as a character piece without the kind of deeper you know, kind of philosophical stuff. I, I think, I think in some respects they were trying to throw a couple of different things in here and see what, see what stuck because like I said, I think a, a lot of people kind of do seem to regard this as like the transition into sort of the more neo-noir period. And I think it has a lot to do with that sort of uh, second person narration and sort of the more deep look into the character motivations and stuff, because you, you can definitely see, in the in the sixties and seventies, especially the seventies, where movies were definitely getting more focused on characters and their and what was going on internally with them, as opposed to what was before. So I, I can see why a lot of people would sort of cite this as like an important film for that, and I can definitely see like why Martin Scorsese would be attracted to this because he definitely sort of really delved into that for quite a while, and in, in, especially in the seventies. And for me, I don't mind it. it it works. It, it, that's the only way I can say it. It works for me. I, I, I agree with you that the film works. I don't think it's a masterpiece, but I think it right. works. If, if if we could kind of clarify kind of where I land yeah. on this. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's fair. Totally fair. Can we move on to, to Ralphie a little bit? Yeah, let's talk about Fat Boy. Uh, <laughs> Ralphie is uh, Ralphie may be my favorite character in the film. You, you look at you know we talk about um, or uh, kind of the way I see the film. You know mm-hmm. you've got Frank Bono who's uh, you know very I'm wearing the suit and I've got the hat and I've got yeah. like I'm I'm really put together and I'm making myself into this suit of armor and I'm acting like a character out of a gangster picture mm-hmm. like in a way that no one else in the film is. Yeah. And as we get kind of deeper in, I'll I'll talk a little bit more about that. And the first kind of uh, chink we see in that is, you know, you run across Ralphie, who's literally like a slob sitting in his in his in his apartment with a bunch yeah. of rats, like He's I mean, a, eating Cheetos yeah. for all of, for all intents and purposes. You a know morbidly I mean? obese um, man eating eating cheese and like a turkey or chicken or something like that in a room yeah. with cages of rats running around in them, and it's like gross as fuck. Really? Right. Well, and he's and he's talking about um, you know I I don't I, I wouldn't use morbidly obese. I mean I, I kind of identify with that uh, size. No, person, he is you know, and, no, you know. I, I Daniel, this guy is morbidly obese. Like, come on, okay. this, this this guy is. He, when you look at him standing up to Frankie Bono, this guy is at least over four hundred pounds. Is he that big? He looks that big to me, man. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, Okay, well, um, the uh, the actor I I, I uh, don't have his name in front of me, but uh, he's actually better known as a writer, and he and he wrote a bunch yeah, of uh, uh, counterculture films in the sixties. Yeah, and Larry 70s. Larry Tucker. He yeah, Larry. he only had a couple acting credits. Yeah, yeah. Shock, Shock Corridor is probably his best known one that he was in. Um, yeah, I, just in my kind of cursory, like looking through what else other people did, you know, it's interesting that he was mostly a writer. I found that character, and this this is what was fascinating to me like almost shockingly modern, you know, because this is, this is such a, you know, you've, you've got this, they're almost a forties archetype. Mm-hmm. Frank Bono. Yeah. And then he runs into Ralphie and this could be, this is, this is like a, you know, a Tarantino character for all, you know, yeah, like, really, like, yeah. you know, I mean, you walk in and this, this feels like, you know, um, Eric Stoltz and Pulp Fiction, <laughs> yeah. sort of thing, you know, like, 
Like it's that same sort of idea. It and, is, yeah. And I mean, good, it, good it feels like very like nine. I mean, I don't want to say like modern, like the '90s is modern, but it feels like something that was way way ahead of its time. Um, when you, when you see this character, I mean, it was it was almost he almost like looks like he's wearing a hoodie even. Like, yeah. I mean, it really like it's 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 a. Uh, like like Kevin Smith's cameo in um, you know Live Free or Die Hard or something you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know uh, I just I, I was looking at it and I'm just like what the fuck am I even like it, it feels almost anachronistic it's so modern mm-hmm. and he's uh he, you know he's such a little slime ball and he's trying to shake uh, Frank down for money and then you know kind of his his ending has its own like little weird kind of genre thing because in the end I mean he's he's killed brutally i mean he's he's yeah. killed uh you know i, I thought that we, i thought he was going to chop his fucking arm off you know when, yeah um, you know, there's, there's a there's a particular shot um where during the struggle where um the uh the bloody arm is kind of in the foreground of the shot mm-hmm. and i thought we were trying to like i literally thought like frank had chopped the guy's arm off yeah and he's and he's like and he's just got a stump hanging there and he's just fighting with his other arm oh no no it's just like a cut but i i I literally i literally kind of landed on did we did we just like have a like a little slasher movie moment in this in the middle of this crime pit film you know like again kind of a fascinating element of it yeah i I rewinded that a couple times because i was like did did that axe actually hit him because the the initial struggle where he comes with the axe and and then Ralphie wakes up you don't really see the axe hit him like you just sort of see him like move try to move out of the way so but then you see that shot point of view behind him and you see his arm it's all bloody and shit it's like okay so he, he at least cut him with the axe and then there's this really brutal struggle for some point of time he beats him with the uh lamp that he keeps his money in when you see his body when you see his dead body you see the uh Money hanging out of the part of the lamp that he uh, actually <laughs> right. hides it in, which is kind of fun. Uh, I really like that. But yeah, Ralphie's interesting because, like you said, he is a very um, he's he's very much like oil and water to Frankie Bono because Frankie Bono, you're right, he's very much this outdated archetype of uh, the 1940s, 1930s type gangster character and. He is just really off-put by Ralphie in every regard. Like, he doesn't want to talk to him. He doesn't want to hang out with him. He wants to get his business done as quickly as possible. And I think that's part of his, uh, you know, his facade of, I'm this professional. I'm this neat, tidy professional who does his job, gets in and gets out, and I'm done. He looks at Ralphie, and Ralphie is just the antithesis of everything he is in his mind. He's this fat slob who has food laying everywhere and rats running through his fucking room and he and he talks too much and you know he 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 wants to have human connections with him and Frankie Bono's not much on human connections uh, so yeah it, it's it's a really good uh, it's a really good dichotomy between the two characters and you you can definitely see why he he eventually snaps and just ends up killing the guy. Yeah, and and that's like such a uh, you know it's such based on basically Ralphie just says like I'm not I'm not playing by your rules. You know, you mm-hmm. you you tried to strong arm me. I'm not gonna let you do that. Yeah. You know, and and he's I mean Ralphie's being a dick. Like Ralph, yeah. like you know I made a deal and then you know like no I'm not doing that anymore. You got to pay me more. If you want your gun, you got to pay me more. Yeah, and uh, you know it's interesting. Like in um, at that point in the film, 
uh, Frank has such a uh, just just a damaged emotional state that he that he can't like let it go. He has to go like literally kill him with an axe. Yeah. And I think it's that line where it's like you're nothing without a gun in your hand. Mm-hmm. Ralphie says, and um, you know it's interesting how much of this film is just based on Frank needs a gun. Like, like yeah. and that's little, like I need a gun. He doesn't have a gun until that that point in the film. So so many times, particularly in modern films, I mean it's just kind of like you know. Pistols are just, they might as well be, you know, confetti. <laughs> like, of course you got a pistol. You're, you're a killer, right? So there's, there's always guns around, you know. But I, I, I like that there's a realism. There's, there's kind of a, you know, connection to the real world. You know, it, it, it doesn't feel as uh, yeah, um, it, abstract it, it, or, or kind of movie logic as, as so many other films kind of would. Yeah, when, when, especially with that line, like, when I was looking at this, I felt like that rings really true because when you think about it, like, real, real-life mob killers, a lot of them are just fat Italian guys, you know? Like, well, real-life real life hitmen, like, I've seen, um, like, kind of true crime stuff, you know, mm-hmm. where, like, people hire hit, hitmen. They look a lot more like Ralphie than they yeah. look like uh, Frank. And, and that's because, like, Frank stands the fuck out. Mm-hmm. Like you know, this this is you do not look like an ordinary dude. You look like oh, I'm. He's literally wearing leather gloves. Yeah, you know, like you, you look like a fucking killer, dude. You know, a lot of these guys they literally like will make deals to like kill people in Walmart parking lots and things. Yeah, you know, um, but it, it's just like these. It just goes like these mafia guys that are you know like the designated hitmen and within the organizations and stuff. They're for the most part they're just fat guys who need a fucking gun to get the job done. Yeah. Um, and I mean, without that, they're really nothing, and they are regarded probably on the same level that Frankie Bono is here by his handlers. You're as useful to me as the last job you did. And if the last job you did didn't go too well, we're going to get rid of you and go on to the next guy. I mean, that rang really true for me. Like, I I felt like this film really got to the sort of really the point of how shallow the life of a hitman really is. Well, of of someone kind of working in the organization. I mean, we we kind of get this, this sense of like, you know, um, you know, you're you're just a hired gun. I mean, we're loyal yeah. to you to the degree that you're not going to lead people back to us. And when you start yeah. fucking up and you start like letting yourself be seen, or when you start, you know, calling and you know, saying, you know, once you once you start to try to pull out of this and once you try to, you know, have some sense of morality or whatever, like I don't give a shit. Kill the guy yeah. I want you to kill. Yeah. Done. Like you're in trouble. In another film Frank would uh, kill the guy and then, like, understand what was happening. And I, and I think it speaks to something about the character that he seems to have no clue that he's yeah. about, that he's walking into a trap at the end, you know, that, that you know, he's, you know, in that stunning uh, action sequence, which uh, actually there was a giant hurricane happening yeah. just offshore. And, man, do you get that sense. I mean, I I don't know if you've uh, kind of been through a hurricane yourself, um, we've we've had uh, we've had minor touches of hurricanes here in Nova Scotia, but for the most part, they they sort of bounce off Nova Scotia and then go into the Atlantic. But uh, right, yeah, no, I mean, but uh, I I mean, I've I've uh, kind of been adjacent to quite a few storms, you know, when I lived in the in the south, and uh, mm-hmm. man, there's the that just it's very visceral. Like it, I was watching it, and you hardly ever see weather in films, but yeah. having like that kind of big of a weather pattern just happening in a film for no reason that it also sells the kind of dramatic emotional turmoil i mean it's it's very much a happy accident i think but it's it's very yeah, it, it was a happy accident because this was uh hurricane donna in 1960 that this 
part of this film was filmed in, and it was the only hurricane in the 20th century to strike the entire East Coast from uh, South Florida to Maine. So it was one of the biggest ones, and um, it, it was uh, the the fist fight for the most part, like the fist fight in the apartment. That was where a lot of that was was shown. Like I I think the film after like afterwards at the end there that was probably the aftermath of the hurricane, just just the winds and shit like that. But but if you actually pay attention to that fight in the apartment stuff, that's where. <laughs> the real hurricane was going down at the time while they were filming. So, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. We should talk about the middle of the film. We talked about the mm-hmm. beginning and we talked about the end. We should talk about the middle, um, because I think this film does kind of split pretty evenly into three thirds. It like, does. Uh, yeah. Frank uh, meets Pete, mm-hmm. um, who was an orphan with him, and uh, Pete kind of brings up this uh, what his sister. Lori, and uh, suddenly we're kind of in the middle of a, a little bit of a comedy of errors, kind of a happy party yeah. movie for um, a good kind of 15 minutes in the in the middle of the film. And uh, it turns it, really dark turns, <laughs> really quick. It turns very dark. It's, yeah. uh, you know, there there's a, yeah, what do you, what do you think about, about that particular sequence? Uh, like kind of from the time that he runs into Pete. You know the character work, the, the you know to to the to the kind of the way that 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 segment ends. Well, first he tries to avoid Pete and get out of the conversation, but he finds that he can't, and then he kind of start a, he starts to justify it in his mind that okay, if I keep talking to Pete and I meet up with Lori and we do this stuff, then that might help keep me out of suspicion as being the guy who murdered this guy during the Christmas holidays or whatever. But he, he sees, he sees Lori and he immediately becomes attracted to her and this throws well, him up. There was a little bit of that from his, from his past too. Like he, uh, he kind of almost going to think for Lori. Uh, I don't know. I don't there's know a, if I... There's a line, right, where, like, one of the voiceover lines is like, you know, oh, Lori, you know, there's... Uh, I, I, can, I never had much interest in women, but Lori was different or something like that. Uh, I don't remember that line. I, I do remember the line where he's basically uh, the only women he needs are the ones he can pay for, and I get I got the impression... I got the impression from this character that every woman he's ever slept with was probably a prostitute. Um, I believe that, yeah. Yeah. Um... So he does not have, know how to deal with a woman on a realistic basis because all all the relationships he's ever had with women are on a money transaction basis. But he's trying, but he is so socially inept that he fails. He oversteps his bounds, and it goes into rapiness territory uh, yeah, very definitely. quickly. Yeah, and uh, I was I was surprised at how far that went. By the way, yeah, um, yeah. And Lori's reaction to it, you know, where, where she, a good upstanding woman in, in that time and place, you know, knows that this is, boys will be boys, right? And, you know, yeah. you just kind of, you grin and bear it, you offer the dude uh, another cup of coffee, and you make sure he gets out of your house. But, like, ultimately, what is she going to do about it? I, think and, I mean, it feels very, very realistic to me. Like it it, was, It's, yeah, it's, it's impl- well, it's implied that they all have the orphanage background, right? So, and the orphanages were run by, you know, Catholic charitable organizations at that time. Um, probably still are to some extent. Certainly so, in New York, I mean, yeah. Yeah, so it is found out later on that she was just doing the Christian charitable thing to, you know, a guy who looked like he was lonely during the Christmas season 
give him a little company, make him feel better. That's what she was yeah. trying to do. And he interprets it totally the wrong way. And, you know, to some extent, you can't blame him because it seemed like she was, you know, at some point maybe interested in him. But he takes it way too far. Well, and... at one point, he's in Foriano's apartment or something, and the phone starts to ring, and, like, the voiceover says yeah. something like, you Lori? know. Yeah. Isn't that Lori calling? <laughs> it's like, yeah, oh my the, God, the, man. The you guy is... Completely lost grip with everything. It is interesting how those uh, the voiceover does speak to his his state of mind to mm-hmm. such a degree, which is why I don't think it, it really is the voice of God. I think it's the voice of like this, you know, like enforced. Yeah, uh, I, I don't I don't even necessarily think it's the voice of God, but I mean that's one of the interpretations. And, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I but I, uh, I get that. I, I find I find the 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 sequences in the middle, you know, the the kind of party sequences and the you know like <laughs> the peanut sequence, you know, like oh, like God, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Like it's <laughs> it's such a uh, talking about Ralphie and I talk about like how ordinary he looks and how mm-hmm. this is a, this is just a dude, you know, who's just kind of hanging out and he's just kind of you know like that's his life. You look at the other, you look at Laurie and uh, Pete in particular and uh, the the party and these are. This is real life. This is this is the stuff that Frank is trying to avoid. Yeah. This is this is Frank is I've got to be cool and collected and I wear dark suits and I sit in bars and I drink and smoke, but you know I kill people and um, I'm I have to be dark and and collected and I can't have this these kind of human emotions or I don't want these human emotions or, or whatever. And you get the sense of what he's lost. You know that yep. that you know to, that he's looking down on kind of Pete and Laurie, but Pete and Laurie really have the better life. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, whose life do you want? I mean, do you, do you want, <laughs> you know, do you want the life of of, um, of Frank in this, or would you rather have? Yeah, I'm kind of a middle manager at this company, but you know, I got yeah. a beautiful wife, and we hang out and uh, let's go and play a game where you roll a peanut across the floor. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like that's a much better lifestyle. That's a much yeah, better lifestyle. Yeah, they got life, this you know? like uh, they got this like proto beatnik fucking party going on where one guy's playing bongo drums, but they're all still dressed in suits and they're doing the peanut I fucking mean, race. This is this is like this is like you know upper middle class people in 1961. Like this is very with it in the time. Like this is this is just pre rock and roll, really. You know. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I, I I mentioned the score, but the the score is one of the things. Like this jazzy score is one of my favorite elements. Yeah, the there's a like an overarching kind of score here and there, but there's like two key songs when he's in the uh, nightclub done by someone named Dean Sheldon. Who I, I couldn't find his credits for anything else, so apparently he's probably just some local guy they knew uh, doing doing it. But uh, he does a couple songs during the nightclub uh, scene there or whatever. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, it's 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 a nice uh, it's a it's a nice little sequence, and um, mm-hmm. man, I I I loved Laurie as a character. I mean, I just I my heart went out to her really really quickly. Yeah, and uh, when we do see her later in the film, and we see kind of like what her real situation is, mm-hmm. it's funny how much pity she has for Frank in that moment. Yeah. You know, she she's definitely oh oh. Like yeah, there's, oh, there's I, just kind of like I, yeah, I, I screwed like, up. I didn't. I, I didn't realize. I'm, I'm so like she doesn't have to say anything, but there's definitely. I'm so sorry that you misinterpreted things this yeah. way. And you know, I'm I'm socially awkward, and I know a lot of socially. I mean, we're people that sit on the internet and talk to people all the time mm-hmm. instead of like having like normal you know relationships with you know meat space. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, there, I mean, there's definitely a lot in 
sad to say it, it is. There's a lot in Frankie Bono that I totally identify with yeah. that I I've, I have been like in my life. You know, I haven't I, mean, I haven't raped anyone or killed anyone, but you know, <laughs> yet, yet. <laughs> let's keep that door. Let's keep those doors open, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's such a beautiful character moment, and then when. Uh, when he leaves and he's and when he's left that behind him and he goes, Oh, well clearly, you know, it's better. I'm alone. Yeah. It's much better than I'm alone. And then uh, that kind of leads to uh, the uh, final denouement in a way um, to, to kind of where he actually kills the guy. Uh, one, one uh, other kind of just, uh, just kind of broad criticism I have of the film is, uh, and I don't want to push too hard on this, but uh, it does have a little bit of that writer, director, actor phenomenon mm-hmm. where, you know, as a, as a writer and a director, I, I write scenes that I'm in and I, uh, you know, I, I write a bunch of stuff where it's me acting and uh, being, being in the center of the frame. And so let's watch me clean a gun for three minutes. You know, let's, uh, I, I let's, like that sequence. So. Great scene, but there's a lot of it. There's a lot mm-hmm. of like we're just watching Frank Bono do things um, in this film. Well, the, this it, this movie seventy seven minutes. I felt like yeah. he probably had to fill some time. <laughs> I'm 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 totally I'm not I'm not necessarily complaining about it. It's just kind of one of those tropes. Yeah, to where, you know, no, I, like I agree. I totally. It's agree. definitely one of those like oh well, you know, I I basically made this film so I can act in it. You know, mm-hmm. look, look at all that. It, it, it had that it had that feel to it, and um, when I looked up uh, uh, the director's uh, uh, IMDb credits, mm-hmm. it didn't surprise me that he went on to do a lot of TV because it's kind of and again not not meaning to be insulting towards it, it kind of feels like TV to me in a lot of ways. Like it it's it feels like good TV, I should say. Yeah. Where um, it is it is a little bit shorter than a feature, and it, and it is kind of focused on a fairly straight line plot. I mean, it really kind of follows a, a kind of structure very narratively, and um, you know, is shot in a very uh, visual but kind of low budget, but kind of less evocative and more informative. I guess is kind of the well. This the this, style. Uh, this this could have been um. I mean, this could easily been a TV uh, movie, or you know, or maybe even shortened down to an episode of like a TV crime show of the period. Yeah. Just take a bit of the violence out. It could have it could have worked. Probably no axe per- murder. Probably not the axe murder. Yeah, that that might have been cut out, but. Um, yeah, it could work that way. Uh, Baron has said in interviews that um, after after this film, he kind of like got some offers to go to Hollywood and make films, and he made a couple films, but nothing really came of it. And he kind of wished he had stayed in New York and made the films he knew how to make. Like Baron grew up in New York, mm-hmm. so he he knew the entire place, he knew the entire area, he knew the kind of mobsters and criminals that he grew up with in the area like he grew up in brooklyn so like he knew some of the people he pulls a lot of that into this film it's not hard to imagine him kind of going on like if he'd stayed in new york to kind of become a more of a proto scorsese mm-hmm. it's it, it is kind of fascinating to say like even though i don't think this film is the is the greatest noir ever made or whatever um yeah. but it's very clear like you look at this and you look at the first you know couple of scorsese's films and Scorsese is reaching for something, and I think that Baron is clearly kind yeah. of reaching for something. Um, I think that the the irony is that we just he just never got to really progress into that more accomplished, more uh, uh, mature filmmaker. You know, yeah. Um, <laughs> although I, I did start to think, like, man, maybe I should like pull up some of his episodes of uh, of the TV shows and kind of see what <laughs> see what they look like. Charlie's you know, Angels, just, uh, see, see, see some freaky. 
and Charlie's Angels. <laughs> let's let's see what's going on, man. You know, it, it would be interesting. You know, um, but yeah, no, I I enjoy the film. I, I I think I've been I've been a little bit hard on it in this podcast. But, no, uh, no, I I think you were totally fair. I mean, I obviously like the film a little bit better than you do, but I I think your criti- criticisms are pretty apt, pretty uh, well thought out. So I mean, I I can't I can't sit here and really argue them to any extent. Interesting trivia note here. He actually originally offered the role to uh, Peter Falk. Um, oh. But he offered to him for no money, and Peter Falk got a got a job offer with, that actually paid, so he's like, ah, I'm gonna get out of here, guy. <laughs> I'm gonna that's take my, reasonable. I'm gonna take my fucking glass eye and get paid. So that that's why Alan Barron actually ended up doing the uh, lead role. This was not released on DVD until 2007 in France as Baby Boy Frankie uh, under that title. And then finally Criterion picked it up uh, under Blast of Silence in 2008. And that is, as far as I can find, the only DVD release. And apparently there's no Blu-ray release at this point. And honestly, I don't think this film would benefit any more from Blu-ray. I mean, it looks great on DVD as it is. And I think it's one of the cheaper Criterion DVDs out there, so it's definitely worth picking up. I got it, I think it was only 30-something when I bought it back in the day, so, I mean, it can't be that much more. I don't even think it's out of print, so grab it. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, no, uh, it's it's worth checking out. I would, uh, I'd probably pick it up just to see the uh, special features on the disc, just because I... There's a there is a really good German produced interview with Alan Barron that goes over all the sort of production notes, and then there is a really good little uh, revisit of all the locations that he shot on, and it's it's kind of cool to see how many locations haven't really changed all that much as far as uh, from the '60s. Like a lot of the a lot of the places in New York kind of still look the same. It's pretty cool. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Daniel, uh, tell everyone about your Doctor Who podcast. If you like listening to me talk about things that are in black and white and sometimes in color, uh, you can uh, listen to uh, Oi Spaceman, a Doctor Who love story. That's a, a Doctor Who podcast to do with my wife. Uh, that's at Oi Spaceman, all one word, dot dot com. We just had Leon. That's the episode that's up uh, currently as we're uh, recording. And uh, the next one, we're actually going to do an 11th Doctor story. We're doing the uh, the Big Bang and the Pandorica Opens. We've got a, uh, a guest we've never had before is coming on to do that one with us. Should be a fun listen. Um, and that's, we hardly ever do, we do New Who stuff, but we don't do a lot of it. So I, I was just highlighting that for people that maybe haven't watched the classic stuff, but have know, know the new stuff. This might be a jumping on point for you. So there you go. Yeah, uh, I, I would definitely recommend listening to the episode I'm on because it's great. That, that was a great episode. I, I, you know, we were we were afraid like it wouldn't kind of work out, but yeah, no. Uh, Lee just showed up for uh, Resurrection of the Daleks and uh, talked about uh, how crazily overstuffed an episode that was and how <laughs> different plot points that we, we essentially really rewrote. The episode. We essentially rewrote the episode. So. <laughs> yeah, we, we rewrote it like four or five different ways and found a better way every time. So you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, so for everyone listening. Listen to the trailer at the end of this. You'll see the places to go. Leave us comments, questions, suggestions for movies to review, anything. Uh, comments, negative or positive. Go to our iTunes and subscribe. Give us five stars. Give us a terrible rating, a great rating, but give us five stars. That way it gets us up in the rankings. It gets us out to more people to uh, listen to us, pontificate about bullshit about films. And uh, that'd be very much appreciated. 
getting our so, bullshit out to more people is 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 what we want to do. Well, that's that is the goal of this podcast, and uh, I think next week is going to be Gene Hackman. The uh, we had a couple different ideas, but I'm I'm down for uh, well the the conversation and uh, night moves. Was that it? Night moves. Yeah, uh, we could stick the conversation on there as well if okay. you want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so night moves in the conversation. We're going to talk some 70s Gene Hackman next week. So if you're interested in that, fucking check us out. And until then, thank you, Daniel, for joining me. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Goodbye. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. To see the host's other stuff, as well as links to websites and podcasts of similar interest, and as well to leave comments, questions, movie requests, and other suggestions, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. From there, you can also find us on iTunes. You got this, man. You got this by the ass.